All right, I'll begin by reading 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God, and this is verse 16, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and, and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. 
I've titled this chapter, The Problem of Stewardship, Part 1. And next week, as we get into chapter 9, that would be part 2. Now, the word steward or stewardship is not used in either chapter, but we'll see the principles of stewardship are clearly present. Chapters 8 and 9 are all about giving. And I suppose we could have just as well titled these chapters, The Problem of Giving. But what I want us to recognize is that there's more to it than simply giving. But we need to think deeper than that. There's more to it than, you know, I have something that is mine, and I'm willing to part with something that is mine. I'm willing to give something that is mine in order to fill or meet some need. And maybe as a result of that giving, I can feel good about myself. No, there's more to it than that. The, the idea of stewardship is more of an attitude that what I have is not mine. What I have belongs to someone else. And I've simply been entrusted with its care. Now let me repeat that because this is so very important. The idea of stewardship is not... What I have is mine, but what I have is not mine. It belongs to someone else. It belongs to God. God is simply entrusted the things that I have with my care. That's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about stewardship. The context here in chapters 8 and 9 is all about benevolence. You know, we've already mentioned that a big part of Paul's third missionary journey was this collection for the needy saints in Jerusalem. And what he refers to in chapters 8 and 9, at least in the New King James Version, as the ministering to the saints. What do we say that word minister means? That, that, that Greek word diakonos, that we get our English word deacon from, what, what does that word minister mean? To serve. To serve. Ministering is all about serving in some capacity. And here, the context is serving by giving. Giving by those who had abundance to those who had need. And, and if we limit ourselves here to just thoughts about money, I think we miss the greater message of stewardship and service, service in general. I think it was Leland who, who talked uh, in a previous lesson about the three T's when it comes to giving. The giving of our time, our treasure, and our talents. So I want us to consider this drawing here. You know, moving forward, understanding this drawing is going to make uh, a lot of things that Paul says make sense. And there's another drawing I'm going to show after this. I don't know how well you can read that. But it's all about abundance. And, and let me just say, when I, when I talk about that word abundance, um, we have a tendency to think of abundance as over and above what I want rather than over and above what I need. Does that make sense? I see a few people shaking their heads. If we think of abundance in terms of what we want, 
there's a good chance we may never have abundance. Does that make sense? But what is it that we really need in this life? As pilgrims on this journey. And Lee, it'll be a little while before we get to the questions. I don't know if you want to sit down and yeah, just letting you know. Okay. What is it we really need? We need clothing, don't we? But how much clothing do we need? How many changes of garments does a person need? That's what I'm talking about, not how much you have on, right? As I understand it, the people in Jesus' day only possessed, many of them anyway, only possessed two garments, two changes of garments. One they had on and the one that needed to be washed because it was dirty. And then when they got a chance to wash it, they'd swap. If you had five changes of garments, you were considered wealthy. I was looking at that, and I decided I'd go down and look in my closet. How many changes of garments do I have? I wondered to myself. You can think about your closet at home. Do this mental exercise. <laughs> I don't know how many I have. A lot. There's a whole row of shirts, there's a whole row of pants, there's coats and other things. Drawers filled with under things. We have abundance, don't we? That's the point. We have abundance. We need shelter. But how much shelter does a person need? Many homes or dwelling places in Jesus' day were a single room. The entire house, one room, the entire family lived in that one room. It's kind of hard for us to imagine that today. We measure our homes and apartments in, in terms of not just the rooms, but how many bedrooms we have. It's a two-bedroom apartment. It's a three-bedroom home, four-bedroom home, whatever. And we know, of course, that along with those bedrooms come other rooms. There's a living room because you can't just live in a bedroom. <laughs> there's a kitchen. There's sometimes even a separate dining room because it wouldn't be proper to dine in the living room. Right? <laughs> and then there are the bathrooms because we need separate rooms to, you know, take a bath. Right? Abundance. And certainly we need food and water and other things I could go on, but do we have abundance? We have abundance in abundance. <laughs> in fact, we have so much abundance, it's easy to forget just how blessed we really are. So the abundance that we're talking about here is not so much about how much time I have left over at the end of a given day or how much money I have left over at the end of a month. Again, it's about stewardship. God calls us to be good stewards of the resources that he provides us, whether those resources are time, treasures, or talent. The parable of the talents is a good example 
uh, of what I'm talking about here. As students of the Bible, we know that in the parable of the talents, a talent was a unit of money. But we often speak of it in a broader sense, including the abilities or the talents that we that have, that God has blessed us with. So Paul commended the churches of Macedonia here in these two chapters for giving, in verse 2 it says, out of their extreme poverty. Now your translation may have some slightly different words. That's the New King James Version. They gave out of their extreme poverty, and they did so with great joy. But looking again here at this illustration, those that have give to those that lack so that there is this cycle of giving and receiving. Those that lack receive from those that have until they have abundance themselves. And then since they previously lacked and they now have, they in turn can give to those in need. So does that cycle make sense? All right. Now, I'm not advocating what is often referred to today as socialism or redistribution of wealth. This is not about taking from those that have and giving to those that are willing to sit back and, and just accept a handout because that's a concept that's completely foreign to the Bible. The key difference is the taking versus the cheerful giving. Does that make sense? Okay. We'll take this a step further. I'm going to look at this diagram. And I haven't done my summary of chapter 8 yet. I'll get there. All right. But understanding chapters 8 and 9 really hinge on understanding these two drawings, these concepts here. And all the passages that you see on that diagram are from chapter 9. I don't know if you can see them or not, but... So next week, when we talk about chapter 9, we're likely going to bring up this diagram again. But the concepts that we're talking about begin here in chapter 8 and extend into chapter 9. And keep in mind that the bigger picture of giving can refer to the giving of any combination of our time, our treasure, and our talents. That is, our time, our money, and our abilities. Those. If we start in the upper left of that diagram, the one I just put up, we give to God. And, and remember, when we give to God, we're merely returning to God a portion of what he has already given to us and blessed us with. What God has called us to manage or to be good stewards of. So we give to God, it says in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, we see that God's grace abounds in us in verse 8. When God's grace abounds in us, we give more to God. Also verse 8. When we give more to God, God blesses us even more. Verses 10 and 11. Then the cycle repeats itself. Because the more God blesses us, the more we should want to give back to God. Now, does that mean that if I give God $100... That he's going to bless me with $200 in return? No. We should never put ourselves in a position of bartering with God. We, we should never say to God, okay, I'll give you $100, but I'm going to expect a return on my investment. 
as if we, you know, when we give to God, he somehow owes us or something. And as absurd as that sounds, there are those that teach that very thing. Something we sometimes refer to as the health and wealth gospel. Maybe you've heard of that. And certainly there is this universal principle of sowing and reaping. Paul mentions that in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 6. And also in Galatians chapter 6 verses 7 through 9. But we may very well sow material things and reap a non-material benefit. Right? When it comes right down to it, which would you rather have? A temporary material benefit or an eternal spiritual benefit? But again, looking at this illustration, what ultimately happens through this process of, of giving of our time and our money and our abilities is that people's needs are met, verse 12, and God is praised and glorified, verses 12 through 15. Redistribution of wealth. Well, this is a redistribution of what already belongs to God. A redistribution of wealth and time, treasure, and talents. And, and I'll say it again. It's all about stewardship. And it's not about taking from someone that has, but someone that has freely giving to the glory of God. A couple of other things to keep in mind before we kind of briefly summarize chapter 8. We need to keep these three things in mind from chapters 8 and 9. First of all, the needy saints in Jerusalem. Why was there such a need? Somebody said it? Why was there such a need in Jerusalem? Severe famine. Widespread famine in that area. Also, you know, Palestine uh, was, was overpopulated with, with, with Hebrew and, and Christian pilgrims. If you recall from our study back in Acts, how many of the Jews had traveled to Jerusalem for the observance of the Passover. Many of those traveled, uh, the ones that traveled really long distances would have stayed there for the Pentecost, celebration of Pentecost. Those that maybe went home in the interim certainly had gone back for Pentecost. Those were two of the three mandatory feasts that, that, that every male, Jewish male, had to go to Jerusalem for, the pilgrimages. Okay? Uh, many believed the gospel message while they were there, where they were converted, and consequently they, they wanted to remain in the area for, you know, to learn all that they could. Recall from Acts chapter 6, there was a problem with the equitable feeding of the Grecian widows because of that. We do know that persecution came and many uh, fled the area. They took the gospel message with them, but many still remained behind. And just because there was a famine in this area didn't relieve them of the responsibility of going to Jerusalem for these feasts. So you combine this widespread famine with this sort of an overpopulation situation, and we can see why there was such a need in that area. Uh, but we know that this contribution went directly to address the need among Christians. And keep that in mind. We'll talk more about that next week. 
Okay, number two, the wealth of Corinth. Corinth was one of the wealthier cities in the Roman Empire. According to uh, chapter 8 and verse 10, they had previously expressed not only a desire to give, but they had already started to give. You know, recall from the first letter there in chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, the very familiar passages now concerning the collection for the saints, Paul says. As I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. So along with all the good news that Titus reported back to Paul about the Christians in Corinth, their repentance and so forth, it must have also reported some reluctance on their part to complete that effort. It would seem that that desire to give had, for whatever reason, sort of come to a halt or been neglected in some way. And uh, we're not told the reasons why. Uh, it wouldn't be a, a stretch for me to think that the false teachers may have had something to do with that. The third point I want to leave you with here is the poverty of Macedonia. The region of Macedonia, while, while once it had been rich and prosperous with its gold and silver mines, its, um, its shipbuilding industry, its heavy trading in salt and timber, had, had been all but decimated by the, the Romans as the Romans took over the lucrative mines. Uh, they allowed the Macedonians to continue working those mines, but they, they cruelly taxed them for the right to do so. The Romans reserved for themselves the trading in salt and timber and shipbuilding. And so although this was good for the Romans, as you can imagine, it was devastating to the Macedonian economy. So with all that in mind, let's sort of summarize chapter 8 here. <clears throat> Paul begins chapter 8 by using the, the Macedonians as this extraordinary example of giving. When Paul refers to the churches of Macedonia, what churches are we talking about here? We could probably name three for sure. What would they be? Philippi? Thessalonica? ones that were more noble than Thessalonians? Berea, okay. So we can name those for sure. He talks about how even in their deep poverty, there in chapter 8 and verse 2, that they gave liberally, not, not only according to their ability, but beyond their ability, he says. You know, that reminded me the story of the, the widow's might in, in Mark chapter 12, verse 41 and following. Recall how on one occasion how, how Jesus was in the temple sitting opposite the place where, where people were making their contributions into the treasury. And he's watching them. And it says that, that many who were rich put in much. I mean, you would expect that, I suppose. But then this widow comes along. And she contributes two mites. Two mites, two very small copper coins. Now, my Strong's Dictionary says that a mite was one-fifth of a cent. 
Now, it sounds to me like you would need five of those mites to make one cent. But the NIV says she contributed a few cents, and the, the English Standard Version says that she contributed a penny. So even though there's some obvious disagreement about exactly how much or, or how little she gave in, in terms of today's dollars, I think we can all agree that it wasn't very much. So what was significant, so significant about this contribution that Jesus took the, 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 the time to point it out to his disciples? It was everything she had. Jesus is saying that the difference here is that the others gave out of their abundance. And we've talked about that some already. But this, this widow contributed her whole livelihood, is what the New King James Version says. The English Standard says she contributed all she had to live on. The point being made here is that the others gave out of their abundance, right? I mean, the overall point is that God measures our gifts, not by their size, but on the basis of how much sacrifice it was to give them and, and how sincere and selfless the heart was that gave the gift, right? There's a quote I like along these lines. God doesn't expect any more from us than we can give. But he also doesn't expect any less. And that's not just about money, is it? Paul says pretty much the same thing in, in verses 12 through 14. That our giving should be according to what one has and not what one does not have. Okay, Paul is making it clear here that um, what was certainly true of the Macedonians, right, and the way they were giving to address this great need. Let me say that again, because I think I said it a little bit confusing. <laughs> Paul is saying this same thing about the Macedonians and the way they were giving to address this great need. Not only that, but Paul said in verse 4 that, that they implored them with great urgency, that's, that's the New King James Version, to receive the gift. The English Standard Version says the Macedonians begged them earnestly to receive the gift. You know, I, I couldn't help but wonder why the Macedonian Christians needed to beg Paul to accept this gift for the needy saints in Jerusalem. Why would, why would they have to do that? And we've already pointed out numerous times, a big part of, of this third missionary journey was to collect gifts for these various, uh, for the needy saints in Jerusalem. Could it be that Paul was keenly aware of just how impoverished the Macedonians were themselves? I, I can almost picture Paul receiving this gift and saying, no, 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 this is too much for you. And then they earnestly begged Paul 
to accept it. Even better than such a great monetary gift, Paul says in verse 5 that they first gave themselves to the Lord. And then they contributed the gift. So there's an important lesson for us today. Right there in the order of our giving. Give ourselves to God first. And then give of our time, our talents, our money to fill needs. So this is the example that Paul is lifting up to the Corinthians. You know, Paul mentioned in verse 7 that, that they, the Corinthians, abound. That is, they have abundance of a number of things. Faith, speech, knowledge, diligence, and love. But they needed to abound in this grace also. What did we say grace was last week? What's the typical definition we hear so many times? Unmerited, unmerited favor. An undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor. The needy saints in Jerusalem hadn't done anything to earn this favor from the Macedonians or the Corinthians. But Paul says, abound in this grace also. Abound in giving. So Paul had just lifted up the example of the Macedonians and their giving. But in verses 8 through 15, he launches into the greatest example of all. That of Christ himself, who was rich, verse 9. Yet for our sakes became poor. Why did he do that? Paul states, so that through his poverty, we can be rich. In verses 16 through 23, Paul reflects on the earnest care that Titus had for the Corinthians and, and his desire to go back to them and to assist them with completing this effort, to assist them in the completion of this collection. Paul talks about sending two of the brethren with Titus. And for whatever reason, these brothers are not named. But instead, described in ways that would, would provide the Corinthians with some level of assurance of their credibility. John and I were talking about this this morning. The false teachers that were there, the same ones that had made many accusations against Paul, it perhaps had made them to think that maybe Paul's going to do something with this money that he shouldn't be doing. He's going to take it for himself, perhaps. But he's sending these men so that there's no question they're witnessing all of this. No question about what that money is going to be used for. Paul points out that they had proven, these men had proven to be diligent in many things, verse 22. That they were being praised throughout the churches, verse 18. And then had been basically handpicked for this task, verse 19. And Paul closes chapter 8 with an earnest request of his own. And I'm kind of paraphrasing this here. 
Verse 24, he's saying, show them, Titus and, and the two brethren, and show all the churches the proof of your love and evidence that our boasting about you has been the truth. So that's a summary of chapter 8. And um, we'll pause just for a minute. Lee, if you want to grab that microphone again. Uh, anybody want to make any comments about the summary? And then we'll get into the questions. Any comments thus far? Okay. And I'm actually going to do a little bit different this time. I'm going to show you the points to ponder. And then that will give us the balance of the time for just answering the questions. Okay. So points to ponder from chapter 8. The idea of stewardship involves having an attitude that what I have is not mine. What I have belongs to someone else. Belongs to God. And has simply been entrusted to my care. Another quote along those lines that I like is, uh, God expects us to give what's right, not what's left. A little play on words there. Isn't that so often what happens? We, we just, we give to God what's left. Whatever's left, well, that must be God's. Ministering to the saints, serving by giving. Giving of what? Our time, our treasure, our talents. Our time, our money, our abilities. We give to God, and God's grace abounds in us. When God's grace abounds in us, we give more to God. When we give more to God, God blesses us even more. As a result, people's needs are met, and God is glorified. Our giving should be according to what one has, not what one does not have. God doesn't expect us to give more than we can give. He doesn't expect any less either. All right, any comments about the points to ponder? And then we'll get into the questions. Got about what do we have? A little less than 10 minutes. All right, question number one for chapter eight. What was the condition of the churches in Macedonia? Okay, um, yeah, so deep poverty. They were also in a great trial of affliction, I think it says there, and it may vary slightly depending on your translation. Uh, yet what did they have in abundance, at least from verse two? Was it? Joy. Somebody say joy. Okay? The joy, joy, the joy they had in giving, really. What three things are said in how they gave in verses 3 through 4? Three things. Okay? Beyond their ability, freely giving. And imploring with much urgency that their gift be received. How did they go beyond Paul's expectations from verse 5? 
They gave of themselves first. If you didn't write down the answers, I'm giving you the verse. You can just look at it. Um, why did Paul send Titus in verse 6? Say it again. Okay. And he wanted Titus, and Titus himself wanted to complete this grace in them. That is to help prepare them for this gift and to make that collection. And um, these questions, as always, will be posted to the website. Someone was asking me about this last week. They said they couldn't find them. You know, if you look on the website under sermons and classes and you see the video there, there's some options underneath. You can listen to just the audio. You can download the audio. The PowerPoint is there. If you see something that says notes, that's the one you can click on and download a PDF file that has the answers for that chapter. What two examples did Paul use to motivate the Corinthians to give in verses 8 and 9? Two examples. Other churches, okay, the diligence of others, the Macedonians being a, a, a good example, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What three guidelines does Paul give to govern their giving? Verses 12 through 14. Three guidelines. Name something. A willingness to give. Okay, ability. It's according to what one has and not one what does not have. And uh, he expresses the idea of equality. So that some were not eased while others would be burdened. Simply load sharing. I guess we could call that. All right, what three men were sent to administer this collection? Maybe a little bit of a trick question here. But what three men? Titus, uh, uh, Luke, that's interesting. Um, what translation do you use? I don't think it says in the New King James Version. Okay, Amplified Version. Uh, I didn't look across all the different versions to see if there was a named brother, and it could very well be Luke. There may be some evidence somewhere else that I didn't pick up on that Luke was one of them. But uh, the answer I've got here is Titus and two unnamed men. They're not named, but they are at least not in the text here but they're kind of described. Like I said, they're described in ways that would, that would give the Corinthians some, some confidence in the credibility of these men. And perhaps these were men that the Corinthians had even heard of before, just, just by way they, they were described. Okay? Why were these men handling the collection and not Paul? Verses 20 through 21. Yeah, yeah, to avoid possible blame, to provide things honorable in the sight of the Lord and men. So 
as John and I were talking about this morning, even if there hadn't been any charges potentially leveled against Paul in this regard by maybe these false teachers, uh, it, was a, it was a wise thing to do, to protect Paul, as Josh said. To, you know, sometimes we talk about, you know, the, the reputation uh, I talk about this sometimes when it comes to dating relationships. There's, there's his reputation, there's her reputation, and there's God's reputation. And all those need to be considered. And so here they're, they're considering, in essence, the reputation of God so that it doesn't cause, uh, give anyone a cause to, to blaspheme the name of God or anything like that. What did Paul want the Corinthians to show these men and the other churches? Verse 24. Right. The proof of their love, the perfection of their, their benevolence, of Paul's boasting about them to, to prove that. Okay. All right, I had a note here that if there was sufficient time, we would go back and talk about the fear of God from last week because we really didn't get into that too much. But uh, two minutes is not enough time to talk about that. So let's just end it right there, and we'll pick up with Chapter 9 next week. Chapter 9. Thank you.